It is a self-obvious point to make that in the junior exploration industry, geology is everything. People are drawn to this sector due to the potential for outsized returns, but without a dedication to seriously engaging with and understanding the geology behind their potential investments, investors don't even know what they don't know about the potential and the risks of the companies they are researching. And that's the first step in destroying personal wealth. Fundamentally, the junior resource exploration space holds incredible potential, both to the upside and the downside. And equipping yourself with geological knowledge is one of the most critical things you can do in this space to tilt the odds in your favor. With that in mind, I'm excited to, to introduce today's panel topic. This panel of geologists focuses on the stories of their long careers and highlights of their current projects. We will learn why they joined their respective companies, what draws them to those projects, and what's changed for geologists in the past 10 years in the exploration game. Just a reminder for legal purposes that this is being recorded, but without warning out of the way, I hope viewers take this panel as an opportunity to ask a geo in a way that they might not have access to very often otherwise. With that in mind, I will try to make sure to leave time at the end for user questions, so make sure to type them into the chat. With that out of the way though, welcome to everybody. My name is Matthew Mickleborough, and I'm the creator behind the Junior Resource Investing YouTube and Substack, and I want to thank Six for letting me host this event. Joining me today are our guest panelists, Jack Stock, who is the President and CEO of Globex Mining, Wes Hansen, President and CEO of Thunder Gold, Greg Smith, VPX of Nucor Gold, and George Reed, Senior Technical Advisor for the Star Diamond Corp. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me here today. Thanks, Great Matt. Here, Thanks Matt. for having us. Thank you. So this first question is going to be more personal than it is maybe about your individual companies. It'll go George, Greg, Jack, and then Wes. Um, why don't you just introduce yourselves as geologists? You know, maybe discuss projects you've worked on, specialization or extensive experience, and then maybe ex just discuss some of your credentials. Maybe that's thesis papers from back in university days, major discoveries that you were a part of, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but just maybe try to let, walk us through, you know, your knowledge base and your areas of expertise. And George, I'll, yeah, I'll start with you, George. Uh, thank you. Matt, I graduated from the University of Cape Town in South Africa in December 1983 with uh, majors in geology and geochemistry. I was very fortunate uh, to immediately have a great adventure in the Southern Ocean on a Scripps Institution ship for the first couple of months of uh, 1984, but that's, uh, that just set up the big adventure for my career. In March of 84, I was employed by De Beers in Johannesburg and focused on the interpretation of indicator mineral chemistries. And I was exposed to extensive diamond exploration programs in Southern Africa and internationally with De Beers. I participated in a team uh, that led to the discovery of the Adowa Piscat Kimberlites uh, to the west of James Bay and of which Victor became a mine. In 82, I did an expedition to sample uh, 20 Kimberlites in Western Mali that had originally been discovered by BRGM and there were rumors of diamonds in the area. Uh, we had a very successful sampling program, but we showed that the Kimberlites were barren. But more about that later, perhaps. Mm -hmm. In 92, I, uh, sorry, in um, 93 and 94, I worked for De Beers out of Thunder Bay in Ontario and uh, had the good fortune of being on the back of the discoveries made by Chuck Fipke and uh, Ira Thomas in the Northwest Territories. 
And certainly I visited a huge number of places in Canada, including the Northwest Territories, Victoria Island, and Quebec, worked in a prospecting program out of Shibugamu in December of 93. In late 96, I resigned from De Beers and uh, came to Vancouver as a landed immigrant. I worked in di as a diamond exploration for a number of companies, later joining Canabrava Diamond Corporation, and uh, worked on their projects at, uh, in Minas in Brazil, Ontario, Quebec, and again on Victoria Island. Um, I'm now with Star Diamond Corporation, I can talk about the section B there. I was approached by Shaw Gold, which was the former company of Star Diamond Corporation in mid 2003. I visited Saskatchewan on the 1st of August of 83. I looked at the rocks, they were full of olivine macrocrysts. And I thought to myself as a geologist, if these rocks don't contain diamonds, nothing will. <laughs> and lo and behold, we have come a long way since then. I commenced as the VPX for Star Diamond Corporation in October of 2003 when Shaw was sinking a shaft to do an underground bulk sample on uh, the Star Kimberlite. The Star Kimberlite is one of some 60 Kimberlites in the Fort Dollar Corn Forest of central Saskatchewan. That's probably enough for me at the beginning. Perfect. Thank you, George. Greg? Yeah, so uh, I am an exploration geologist, so graduated uh, in 87 from uh, St. Evex University in Nova Scotia, been working in the industry uh, since then, uh, started in Canada right from, well, from Nova Scotia to, uh, to the Yukon, like a lot of geologists then, uh, as we worked through one of these cycles, went uh, overseas, in particular to South America, and I, and I spent... Uh, better part of 20 years working in greenstone belts in, in northern South America. And that continues to be where I'm working now in terms of the geology and in, in West Africa. And significantly in Venezuela, I had the chance to go right from discovery, drilling the first hole on a, on a number of multi-million ounce gold deposits there and, and, and brought them right into production. So both uh, high-grade underground deposits and, and open pit deposits, the company I worked for as, as VP of Exploration had over 20 million ounces of resources and reserves. I drilled almost a, a million meters in the in the greenstone belts down there. And, and uh, yeah, it was a, obviously a challenging jurisdiction from a political standpoint, but as an exploration geologist was just a spectacular opportunity to, uh, again, bring these discoveries through development and, and actually into production and and be able to get that experience to know what a, a an actual economic gold deposit looks like uh, right from the the first soil sample to uh, as I say developing the underground and and, and open pit mines and and uh, again sort of with that greenstone uh, sheer hosted theme uh, moved over to West Africa and I've been working there now for the better part of the last uh, dozen years. Uh, again, a lot of the same rocks, uh, significantly as well in the tropics. So as a, a guy from Canada, one thing I had to get used to and learn down there was the saprolite as well, the, this this thick oxidation blanket that exists on top of these deposits. And, you know, that gives you a lot of advantages in terms of being able to, to uh, lower your mining costs and lower your processing times and, and the energy required to process some of this stuff. So that's a big advantage. The downside is... is uh, you could walk for days and not find a rock. So uh, it's a, a little bit different type of geology. And I know we'll get into talking a little bit about geophysics and geochemistry. And that really does become important when you're working in those 
tropical uh, saprite, laterite terrains because, uh, like I say, you don't see a lot of geology on site. And, uh, yeah, most of my career has been chasing after these large uh, greenstone-hosted uh, structurally controlled gold deposits. Perfect. Thank you, Greg. And on to you, Jack. Uh, like the others, I'm a geologist. I have a BSc in geology from what's now Concordia uh, University from 1972. Uh, and I have some master courses in Pleistocene geology from McGill. Uh, when I graduated, I went to work for Naranda Mines up in Naranda, Quebec. Uh, I found that I was not very good at taking orders. So I ended up uh, going out into business on my own as a consultant, but also uh, I got into property acquisition. Uh, and I ended up, according to the Quebec government at the time, I was the largest private mineral rights holder in the province of Quebec. Uh, and I did that for a number of years uh, until uh, I listened to a broker, big mistake. And uh, I had a, a shell company that I had bought just to help someone out had no intention of going public. And he said, look, put some properties in it and uh, we'll finance you. So uh, we did it. And uh, I've built the, the company up uh, from that one individual project uh, over the years now to we have what 232 projects spanning uh, half the periodic table and uh, uh, industrial minerals, specialty metals, all kinds of things. Uh, if I have any specialty, it's that I'm not a specialist at all. Uh, I consider myself a prospector, and basically I'll do anything legal to make money in the mining space. That's about it. Excellent. And U.S.? Well, uh, you're very fortunate today. You have two AUAA university-trained geologists on the panel today. I'm a graduate of Mount Allison from 1982. Started my career right away as an exploration geologist in the, in the Northwest Territories. was extremely fortunate in the first three projects that I worked on in my career were all developed uh, as high-grade underground mines. All, threes, all three, unfortunately, no longer operate. Uh, in fact, they had very short mine lives, but that's a long story that we don't have to get into. But um, transition from mining geology, from exploration geology into mining geology is, a, 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 you know, did all the development, all the development aspects of it and transition to large scale, um, large tonnage low grade open pit mines around the world, uh, Nevada, down in Latin America, Russia, uh, sort of got to see a lot of the world and a lot of different deposits and a lot of different greenstone hosted systems. And it's just been an interesting ride and that uh, it continues to this day. Interestingly, my first summer job as a, as a student geologist was based in Thunder Bay, Ontario. I'm back, baby. I'm back. That's where <laughs> that's where Thunder Gold's primary project is, the Tower Mountain project. And it's a it's a, a very unique system that I'm very excited to be able to work on. Excellent. Thank you, Wes, and thank you, gentlemen. We'll move on to question two here. So, right, question one, a little bit of understanding of who you are as individuals. This one, maybe we'll we'll start trying to talk about your individual companies and your individual projects. Okay. So the 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 next question is going to be kind of a two or threefold question here. You know, focusing on the geology a bit, I mean, you can you can take in the direction you wish non-geologically as well, but maybe start to explain for us what type of mineralization system are you exploring? And maybe more importantly for people, you know, assuming that we have, a, you know, an audience of laymen here, what are the pros and cons of that type of system? And, and if you don't mind explaining a bit, whether that, that could be anything from exploration to milling to refining, but anywhere along that process, 
what are you know what are the unique attributes to it that you have to account for both positively or negatively uh, for your for your individual systems? And so maybe let's do Wes. We'll start with you, and then we'll head to George, Greg, and Jack. All right. So I work on uh, Thunder Gold's primary asset is the Tower Mountain Gold Project. It's located about 50 kilometers outside of the city of Thunder Bay in northwestern Ontario. It's uh, it's in the Shabandoan Greenstone Belt, which is a, an emerging gold camp. Uh, very exciting developments have been happening in the uh, in the Shabandoan of late. One of our neighbor companies has released some very positive results, extremely similar statistically to the historical data set at Tower Mountain. We believe, or we're exploring it as an intrusion-related gold deposit. Uh, we believe that the gold mineralization is specifically related to an alkalic intrusion, which dominates the central core of our deposit. And the mineralization that has been discovered to date is uh, it exists as a halo. It surrounds the intrusive, um, which means that only about 20-25% of the total uh, available contact area has been explored by drilling to date. And that 20 to 25 percent has been tested by about 190 drill holes, 40,000 meters of drilling, very long, uh, consistent, low-grade intervals of gold mineralization, and and by that I mean several tens to several hundreds of meters of core length, averaging between 0.8 and 1.2 grams per ton, with very few outlier grades. So very, um, you know, the spectacular type of gold grades that you typically expect in, in our key and greenstone belts are largely absent at Tower Mountain. And that's a good thing because it what it does is it, it presents this predictability with the deposit. And having built six mines and, and operated six mines, the one thing that I know for sure in life is predictability is it's a great thing. Predictability pays bonuses. High grades don't often pay that. Uh, because they're just simply less predictable. So we see a unique opportunity at Tower Mountain. Basically, uh, I was attracted to the story because it was unique. Uh, it's it's the shear zone type mineralization that's typical of our key and greenstone belts is thus far absent. Uh, doesn't mean it's not there. just means that it isn't a, a vital component of the area that's been drill tested to date. So um, we see an opportunity for a large tonnage low-grade project development. Uh, I wouldn't want to develop it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a costly development process, but a major at some point in time may be interested in doing that. And that's our shtick. We want to, uh, we want to do a good job with the exploration and present it to somebody else to carry the ball over the line at some point in time in the future. Excellent. Thanks, Wes. On to you, George. Thank you, Matt. Um, Star Diamond Corporation is a, is a participant in two diamond projects in the prairies. I will, uh, but that is firstly the um, Fort Alacorn Kimberlites uh, that are some 60 kilometers to the east of Prince Albert in central Saskatchewan, as well as the Buffalo Hills Kimberlites in uh, northern Alberta. I'll speak predominantly about the um, diamond bearing Kimberlites in the Fort Alacorn district of Saskatchewan, where we have done extensive work in the past. Um, I should also say that we, on this project in Saskatchewan, we are in joint venture with Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto have elected to put the project on care and maintenance. We are making every effort to recover the project in its entirety uh, from Rio Tinto, and there is corporate activity underway to achieve that. Um, obviously, we do not know where that corporate activity will end, but we are optimistic that we will fully recover the project and can 
develop this unique uh, kimberlite province. I should say that these diamond-bearing kimberlites is what we, we are pursuing, but these are unique kimberlites in that they erupted in the Cretaceous on what was then the eastern edge of the Western Interior Seaway, where the oil and gas deposits of Western Canada were being formed. Uh, as the basin that was the Western Interior Seaway expanded, it buried the kimberlites as they were being eruptive. So these very large eruptive centers, which in a normal subaerial environment would weather very quickly, were very quickly buried by marine mudstones. And essentially the craters that are dominated by the mineral olivine, that is unstable under crustal temperatures and pressures, uh, and would weather away, those craters were preserved. So thus we have very, very large ore bodies, and we have some uh, 479 million tons that has been shown as ore feed in a preliminary economic assessment. Um, these kimberlites were buried in the shallow marine deposits. I've talked about that already. They have very large aerial extent, but unfortunately, they are 100 meters below surface. So it was instrumental to use geophysics to make that discovery and the original anomalies were picked off a, geof a very broad scale geophysical survey done by the Saskatchewan uh, Geological Survey in the, in the 60s. And uh, the, the, the survey, the, the targets were picked in 1988 and they were drilled in 89 and shown to that they were kimberlites. Um, in terms of unique attributes of these rocks, uh, there is an extensive field of kimberlites. Two kimberlites, Star and Orion South, have been extensively evaluated and shown to contain the most fantastic populations of diamonds. Diamonds from the Fort Lacorn kimberlites uh, have uniquely coarse diamond size frequency distributions. Diamond size frequencies are unusual in that they are uh, they are log normally distributed, which in layperson's terms means there are infinitely more small ones than big ones. However, in the case of the Fort Lacorn, it's among a small group of kimberlite worldwide that contain a number of potentially very, very big stones. There have been two stones just under 50 carats recovered in evaluation. We have also shown through subsequent work that these diamond populations contain unique populations or proportions of type 2A diamonds. These are diamonds that have a carbon structure that is completely free from nitrogen and they can be the most perfect gin and tonic white, they can be pink and they can be brown. But certainly all of the big diamonds recovered in history, the Cullinan, the Lacedi Larona, the Suelo, uh, this, all of the, the, the Kohinoor, which we've heard from India, all of those big diamonds were type 2A stones. So we are very optimistic about the, the economic opportunity that exists in the Fort Alicorn to recover a very unique population of natural diamonds. Okay. Interesting. Thank you, George. On to you, Greg. Yeah, thanks. So uh, 
similar to, to, to Wes. Again, we're in, in greenstone uh, terrains, uh, slightly younger rocks than, than what they're looking at. And, and uh, I guess I would say we're, we're looking at more typical structurally hosted deposits uh, within these terrains. So uh, uh, Nucor's uh, NG Gold Project is located in Ghana. Ghana's uh, the sixth largest gold producing country uh, in the world. It, it's had a a really long history of, of gold production, and that's directly related to the geology. So there's uh, a number of, of large deposits there. There's been you know thousands of years of, of, of history. And, and uh, what I like about it is, it is even after all of that, people are still making new discoveries. And, and that's what we're doing there at, uh, at, at Enchi. So um, these deposits exist, there's, there's big, regional shear zones that go for hundreds of kilometers and then second and third order splays that go for tens of kilometers coming off of those and we've got four or five of those re, uh, second and third order splays so we've got a cumulative length of, of you know 150 kilometers of, of structure that's been defined uh, we've got a resource there now uh, 744,000 ounces indicated 972 inferred uh, about three quarters of that is is in shallow open pits within that oxidized material that I was talking about earlier, this saprolite. So that makes it inexpensive to mine. Uh, opens up your 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 processing options. We we uh, we we updated that resource earlier this year. We have an existing PEA which is modeled a, an open pit heap leach operation. Gives us an after tax NPV of. $212 million that produces about a, a million ounces of gold over 11 years. So what these uh, deposits do, and they, they kind of end up being distributed like a string of pearls along these structures. So you've got these tens and tens of kilometers of structures. Obviously not every meter along that is a, is a gold deposit. So that's where you need to bring in this geophysics and this geochemistry and obviously more advanced tools like trenching and, and diamond and RC drilling to define where exactly along those structures are the, the, the economic gold deposits. Uh, again, we've advanced uh, several of those that, that uh, there's five deposits that make up that 1.7 million ounces. And we've beyond that, that we've number of, of, of additional anomalies, whether they're surface anomalies, golden soil works really well for us. You know, the existing deposits, when you look at those, there, there's kilometer scale and, and you know grams per ton in the soil that exist above the deposit so it's a, a really useful tool as well and we've got a number of those that we haven't drilled yet so uh, in conjunction with expanding the deposits studying them further we've got a lot of uh, metallurgical work that we're doing now as well because again you can't just find the deposit you actually have to be able to mine it and, and get the gold out of it so we're advancing all of that sort of work and uh, and in conjunction, look to uh, to be drilling in the future some of these uh, deposit uh, anomalies where we're now doing some trenching work, uh, prioritizing these dozens of targets that we have, and and uh, we'll be doing some 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 future future drilling there. And all of this, why these there are so many deposits in Ghana, why we've got so many targets on our our our, our project, really gets back to this this structurally hosted mesothermal style, which is you know these these deposits were formed at great depths. There was lots of fluids feeding into these zones. So it really gets to the three things that you need, which is a source of fluids. Uh, uh, you need a trap to, to, to stop these fluids. And, and then that needs to be preserved. So 
that that's that that's why you know the, these greenstone hosted deposits are the world's largest source of of, of gold mines. It, it's the the largest single deposit type, and and uh, you know in terms of the history of the world, the largest de deposit type after the Waters Rand, which is really a, a one off. And uh, and yeah, and that's why even after a thousand years, people are still finding new deposits in Ghana, and we're still finding new deposits at uh, at Enchi. Thank you, Greg. I like you're you're starting to tiptoe into other topics. I want to talk to you guys about that above ground exploration. I think is going to be really worthwhile too. But let's let Jack take us home here for this one. Okay, we're a little bit different than most other companies. Uh, where other companies are focused, we're unfocused, uh, and I mean that in the sense that. We, we're, we're not married to any particular element or rock type or, uh, or compound. For example, we have 118 precious metal properties, uh, 62 base metal properties with the precious metal uh, content, and then another 52 projects which are industrial minerals, specialty metals, and so on, such as uh, lithium, antimony, uranium, uh, brucite, vanadium, iron, uh, talc, uh, you know, anything. Our, our, our philosophy as a company uh, is to do anything that has the potential to make a, a discovery and a mine and generate revenue uh, for the company. Uh, and uh, we try to uh, acquire, if we have a specialty, it's the acquisition, and then we vend it out and let other companies uh, put in the money, take the dilution, take the risk and we retain a small portion in the form of a gross metal royalty. Uh, I was asked to sort of pick one or two things that, that I like, and it's hard when you've got 232. Uh, so I'm going to pick one that uh, it's one of the longer uh, held projects that we have, which I think is spectacular, uh, but hard for other people to understand. And it's near Timmins. It's 13 kilometers south of Timmins on Ontario, and it's uh, incredibly altered ultramafic. Uh, and it's basically talc and uh, magnesite. Now, when you say talc, people go, oh, Johnson & Johnson, asbestos, lawsuits, forget it. No. Talc, uh, first of all, talcum powder today is cornstarch. They don't use talc anymore. Uh, second thing is the problem that they had is they had asbestos in their talc. We don't have any asbestos in ours, but we're not using it for health reasons. There's talc. It, it, the value of talc is based on what's called the brightness, which is how white it is. And the use for the talc is in the plastics industry. About 20% of plastic is talc. It's used as a filler. And the most expensive part when you're making a plastic is the coloring. So they want to have the lightest color talc possible. All the talc of the high quality brightness, 93, 94, comes from China and a little bit from Afghanistan if they can pretend it comes from China. So uh, they, there's a, a demand for a North American source. We have this project, from what we can see from the surface work and from the drilling and so on, there's two to 300 years open pitable uh, in a democratic law abiding province, country. Uh, it, um, this particular material uh, as I said, it's a super high brightness. We've done the test work. It works beautifully for making plastics. Now, what also makes this project interesting is not only is it talc, uh, but it's also magnesite. Now, most of the talc mines in the world are just talc. This one is talc and magnesite, roughly 50-50. The magnesite, you can make magnesium metal, 
or you can make what's called magnesium oxide. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen, uh, you know, pictures of furnaces and glass making, steel making, and you see, see this molten metal. You ever wonder why the furnaces don't melt? They don't melt because they're lined with magnesium oxide brick, which takes incredibly high temperatures. So that's one of the big uses for magnesium oxide. But there's a new use now, and it's for making what's called wallboard. Most wallboard is made out of gypsum, it's gyprock in your offices, your home, and it's great, except that gypsum absorbs water. And if it absorbs water, you have the potential of black mold growing on the wallboard. So it's not great in basements or in humid climate. If you make the wallboard out of magnesium oxide, it's more fireproof, it is more rigid, and it does not absorb water. So this particular project in Timmins, Ontario, a mining-friendly uh, province, open pitable, cheap mining, 85% of the rock is ore. It's amazing. Long life, two to 300 years probably. So we look at this thing, if we can get this thing into production, or if we can find somebody to take it into production, it's gonna generate more profit than a gold mine. It's gonna generate more profit than a copper mine. It's just a fantastic project. And the remaining 15% is carbonate and silica. So there's absolutely no environment problems. We own the mineral rights, we own the surface rights. Great project. And this is just one of 232. And we keep acquiring these things that other people uh, won't necessarily be interested in. For example, we picked up a 24 million uh, ton dolomite deposit on the north shore of the St. Lawrence River within walking distance of loading docks. It cost us like $650 for 24 million tons because other people ignore it. They're focused. We're unfocused. That's it. Hmm. Thank you, Jack. Interesting. I never never considered that that specific type of mineralization myself. Uh, and thank you, gentlemen. So maybe let's do a follow-up here and uh, that I, I wanted to focus on. This actually ticks off a question from one of our user, uh, viewers as well. Just talking about like more of the above-ground exploration, maybe, right? Geochem, geophys analysis. Maybe do you want to discuss what does or doesn't work for you? I mean, maybe if we talk about drilling Pathfinder minerals, maybe just maybe overarching the question I'm asking you is what are the telltale signs that you're into the good stuff, right? Uh, and so maybe let's start with George, George, Greg, Jack, and then Wesley, okay? Um, Diamond-bearing kimberlites uh, will only erupt through areas of crust that have been stable since the early Proterozoic. So that's areas of crust that are uh, more than 2 billion years old. And these cryptonic islands have floated around through various cycles of plate tectonics and coalesced and disaggregated, but the structural integrity of the cryptonic island has persisted through time. And so you need, the, the kimberlite is merely the volcanic eruptive that brings the diamond from deep in the mantle where it is the stable form of carbon at high temperature and pressure. It brings it to the surface and the, the kimberlite is not, is not the crystallization method of the diamond. It, the diamond is crystallized in the mantle and subsequently uh, erupted to surface. So we need to find something that is very much more common in diamond than um, diamond itself to look for 
as our indicator mineral. And there are some dense mantle indicator minerals, ilmenite, garnet, chromite, chrome dioxide, and olivine that weather out of the kimberlite and persist frequently in the secondary environment or the weathered rocks on the surface. The composition of garnets and chromites can be analyzed using an electron microprobe and they can be shown to have crystallized at depths where diamond is the stable form of carbon. So that's basically below uh, 43 kilobars of pressure in the mantle. Um, we can also use the composition of populations of chrome diopside crystals uh, to determine the nature of the geotherm. So that's the rate of the increase in temperature and pressure at the time of kimberlite eruption. And kimberlites that carry diamonds generally erupt along what we refer to as a cool geotherm that has about 35 to 40 um, milliwatts per meter squared. And diamonds, we must remember, crystallized very early in Earth's history. And then at various times through Earth history, kimberlites have then erupted them to the surface. Uh, I think that gives you a good idea of uh, where diamonds come from and how you can look for them. Obviously, there are methods with geophysics. The kimberlites in the Fort Lacorn area were buried by mudstones and glacial till. And the only way they could be found was they have a magnetic expression and that was detected with geophysics. So the indicator minerals were not used to discover the Fort Lacorn kimberlites, purely geophysics. But many geophysics Many kimberlites are discovered, particularly in Botswana, where the big pipes that were discovered that are the backbone of the economy, uh, those were discovered based on indicator minerals. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, George. Greg? Yeah, so uh, I have touched on it a, a little bit. And, and uh, in terms of what we're looking at, these greenstone-hosted structurally controlled deposits, uh, uh, you know, we, we can actually use geophysics, geochemistry, and geology on surface, uh, the saprolite notwithstanding, to, uh, to to hone in on these things. So uh, in terms of the geophysics, it's, it's really good for highlighting these regional structures, which again go for hundreds of kilometers. And more often what you're looking at there are two different types of rocks on each side of the fault. So you get different patterns or different structures on one side versus the other. The, the particular splays that run down our project that uh, are the second and third order structures which actually host the deposits uh, show up quite strongly on the on the magnetics and in particular the electromagnetics. So they've got uh, greater conductivity uh, because of the fluids that have flown through there than the surrounding rocks. So they're literally big pink structures that go and, and sit in a, in a background of, of blue rocks and, and uh, and then to hone in on those further, you've got the geochemistry, as I've discussed, that you want to have those anomalies sitting on top of your structures. But even the structures themselves, where the deposits tend to occur, are these little jogs in the structures, the, the really straight flat parts, uh, the, the fluids kind of went there and kept on going. So they, they need to have these traps that, that, 
that made them stop for some reason and pool and and that's where the veining occurs and and in our case the 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 gold is is very closely associated with the density of quartz veining so in terms of the geology while we don't have a lot of you know outcrop on surface uh, there is a real close association with the density of quartz veining and the, the the grade the gold grades within the deposit so even when you're taking your soil samples if you're you know mapping out the the the, the amount of quartz fragments that are associated with the samples you're, you're seeing or if you're lucky enough to actually see some of these veins outcropping within the saprolite then again that's a really good sign and ultimately like a lot of exploration you want to use all of the tools that are in your toolbox and you want to see good signs out of them all so you want to see the right response from the geophysics you want to have the the the, the gold in the soils uh, we've done a little bit of pathfinder elements but we've got such a strong response from gold and we're looking for gold deposits that we don't venture away from that very often but if you know there is uh, other metals that are associated with it uh, a little bit of copper a little bit of lead Tellurium is one. These are, are tend to be gold tellurides associated with some of this. A lot of it's free gold once it gets oxidized in the saprolite. But you could use some of those other elements if you're not getting the response you want from gold. But in our case, you know, we're getting grams per ton gold in our soil samples, so we really don't need to venture far afield from that. And uh, as I mentioned, from the geological standpoint, for us the most significant thing is is the the, the presence of quartz veining now. Not all quartz veining has gold, uh, but certainly almost all of the, uh, the the areas in our deposits that have significant gold grades have at least some quartz veining in them. Hmm. Greg, this is just an aside for me, but uh, your discussion of fluids is interesting. It reminds me of, of oil and gas exploration, right? You need trap, you need seal, you need reservoir, you need source rock. Yeah, I think there's an interesting kind of overlap there I hadn't really considered on myself on my own. Um, but yeah, I guess, Jack, should we move on to you? Okay, I, I find it to be difficult answering this question because, as I said before, we're not focused. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because we're not focused, uh, any method, any type of exploration, modeling, uh, any type of equipment will use it. Uh, and we have an application for it. Uh, it's different depending if you're looking for precious metals, base metals, and so on. But if I had to choose one thing, uh, I would point out that we generally... I'd say for 95% of the time, we're working in established mining camps. And our pathfinder is the knowledge base that is accumulated over time. And we have a lot of projects in Quebec and they have a good system called CGM, where you can go and you can get all the work that has been published uh, by companies or by the government on the area, geological, diamond drilling, geochemistry, and so on. So. What has it allowed us to do over time is pick up properties where there is already a knowledge base. Somebody else has already, you know, done the work to outline, you know, 500,000 ounces of gold or, you know, 24 million tons of dolomite, whatever it is. Uh, so the, our pathfinder, if you will, is the work done by others before who have not succeeded for various reasons, either uh, metal prices weren't there, or maybe there isn't a deposit there, but all the indications are that there is a good potential that there will be. So, for example, drill holes with good values, uh, which is one that I love the most. Uh, but uh, we, so our, our, our methodology is anything that is applicable, utilizing all knowledge bases 
that has been accumulated over time. And I know that doesn't sound very scientific, but uh, it actually, the application of that app for information in a rational method to guide you towards targets that create value uh, is scientific in the sense of geology. Thanks a lot, Jack. I didn't give you a good question. You gave me a good answer. So that uh, works for me as the interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> what about you, Wes? Uh, these guys stole all my thunder. I mean, uh, I, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, uh, the, the best thing a geologist can have in the field when they're looking for any mineral is a lot of luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that always comes in handy. But, you know, there's a set playbook of, of clues that we use. And, and I'm very much in the same boat as Greg. I mean, Geophysics, we, we're, we're heavily reliant or, or very fortunate at Tower Mountain that geophysics is an awesome tool for us. It, it really helps isolate the, uh, the intrusion and then IP, uh, induced polarization, which is another tool that we use extensively. That's shown a great uh, proclivity to matching up with higher gold grades. And, and those higher gold grades are associated with pyrite mineralization, which is just shot through the rock mass, which has been essentially shattered. So if you, if you want a good analogy for Tower Mountain, if you take a, if you go out to your driveway now with a hammer and smash your windshield, that, uh, that circular shatter pattern is kind of what we're proposing for uh, the, the trap, uh, the openings that allowed the fluids to, to flow into the rock mass that surrounds the intrusion and deposit all this cold. So, you know, good and, and good people. You got to have good people. And, and I can't state that enough as having geologists that have the desire to ask questions and then go out and find answers to those questions, that's invaluable uh, for exploration companies. Thank you. So I'm going to maybe, it might be a slight repetition here, but I think there's there's value here in kind of trying to drill down to help understanding of, of these topics. And so these are going to be more kind of company-specific questions. Maybe I'll start with Greg here. We'll, we'll move from Greg to Jack to Wes to George. But Greg, and, and you know, you, you have touched on this, and thank you for that. But, I mean, you're exploring the Bibiani mesothermal shear zone. Um, can you just, again, like let's assume that, there, that we have laymen or lay, lay people in the audience that, that aren't super familiar with this, maybe spend less time defining mesothermal and shear zone, but then maybe more practically, uh, what is the significance of, like, how do you go about exploring a shear zone, right? Once you know that's what you've got, you know, what is what is the unique approach, you know, to, to a shear zone that, that makes it a shear zone or makes that, that defines your, your attitude, your approach to it? Yeah, so I think, uh, again, we, we've touched on the, the whole source and, and, and pathways and, and traps, and, and it really does get down to that because these structures are so large, right? Again, they go for tens or hundreds of kilometers, so you're you're not going to have a deposit every meter along that structure. And, and why is that? It's because they, they were also formed at tens of kilometers of depth, you know, approaching the upper mantle at the lower part of the crust so again these are are giant systems that are being run down there with with an almost inexhaustible amount of fluid to feed them and and they're they're long lived you know we're we're looking at 2 billion year old rocks here and and systems that have had a real rough life you know they 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 call them greenstone rocks because they've just been heated up so much and buried so much that that they you know, a lot of the original minerals that were in that rocks have been converted into other things that tend to be green. So that's why they're called greenstones. But it also means they've had a really long history of, of, 
of you know plate tectonics and things crashing into each other. So they've they've gone through series of, of, of cycles of, of where they've had you know ductile deformation, which which means that they've kind of smashed into each other, like putting your fist in a bunch of putty, and and they've deformed that way, or or brittle deformation, which is like snapping a bunch of spaghetti. And you really need to understand this history of the not only the host rocks because the host rocks always tend to be older than the actual mineralization so you need to know the history that the rocks have gone through you need to know when the gold mineralization occurred within that history and and whether it happened when when the in the spaghetti mode or in the in the, in the plasticine mode and then you need to know the history that happened afterwards because maybe these things did start as a bunch of straight lines but deformation since then is twisted them into a, you know, a bowl of spaghetti and, and instead of a big, long, straight pieces of spaghetti. So it's really important to know the, the history of the rocks that you're looking at, know the, the style of deposit that you're looking at, because that, you know, means that things are going to look a certain way, but also the history of the rocks and the mineralization after it actually formed, because that can really change the distribution of what you're looking at. And again, it, it might not end up being these really big straight lines, it might be associated with one of those structures, but it might be hosted within a, a, a package of rocks. And if the mineralization is early enough in the history, it, like I say, could end up looking like a bowl of spaghetti and you're following lines that are wiggling like that, as opposed to just following them straight along the structure. So you, you as we talked about, use all of those tools, all of your knowledge. I really agree with Wes in terms of having good people on the ground as well. We're really fortunate in Ghana that they've got, you know, uh, engineering and mining and geology schools there. And we all know we're, we're losing those types of institutions across the world. And, and they've got a real strong presence there. And it helps that they've got a, a strong industry and, and big companies working there, you know, your Goldfields, your Anglos, your, your Newmonts of the world that, that, that teach geologists well. There's, there's employment for them right out of school. So it's, uh, that's a real, uh, real big resource as well, that we have the ability to hire experienced geos. You know, some of the guys working on a project have been there for, for 10 years. And, and uh, you know, you, you definitely gain knowledge uh, the longer you've been there and, and some of them have worked on some of these other mining operations that are continuing to be active in Ghana and, and uh, you know as I say from my personal experience you know haven't had the ability to actually work on underground mines and open pit mines and know what's economic and what's not it's uh, it, it's really a big part of what you do on a day-to-day on a -day basis to make sure you're, you're making the right decisions. Hmm. Yeah, excellent. I don't mean to editorialize here too much, but I think that both of you guys are, in, are, are articulating well. You, you don't necessarily have to be a geo, but you, you find geos you trust or find people with bodies of work that you yourself as an investor trust and can and point to and understand that they, maybe I don't know, but you do, right? And I think that's a huge part of this business as well. Uh, so Jack, here's a question maybe a bit more tailored to you, not just uh, the generic non-fitter for you, but uh, just, I just want to discuss maybe the, the philosophy a little bit behind Globex right i mean you like you say you've got 232 i think if my memory serves uh different mining claims that you have i was joking before we were airing that i mean there was a lake 10 kilometers south of me that that i've gone swimming in that you've got the mining claims too right so you've, you've the, the map is kind of peppered all over canada maybe i just wanted to ask you then i mean is there a governing philosophy? I mean, you've kind of already said your 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 specialty is that you're a generalist. But I mean, are you mineral agnostic? Do you have like a portfolio ratio you try to fill gaps into, right? Where you know you've got 
you just signed 10 precious metals, so now let's go find a base metal? Or is this just for you simply finding as you kind of pour over the papers and pour over the different, pour, pour over everything, just finding the best land, best product available? It, it is precisely that. Over time, uh, ground becomes available. Uh, and so you're keeping an eye and you're trying to pick up really things that you, you sense has potential. We're, we're focused on acquiring assets at, at the best uh, price possible, uh, focused on working in established mining camps, focused on making money, uh, which in the junior sector is not normal. We have in cash and shares, we have over $25 million in the bank. Uh, and uh, not diluting your shareholders by through the, the cheap acquisitions and then having other companies come in, pay you to take the risk, take the dilution because they have to issue shares to do the work. And then if they're successful, hopefully, we end up with a royalty stream off the property. So, and we've succeeded in keeping, uh, for example, we only have 55.4 million shares out after the company's been around 40 years and we've never done a rollback. Those are all original shares. The reason for that is, is that we want to make money. And I know and we, we, we view the end product uh, in our system as not as the gold or the copper or the zinc, but as the money because you're going to sell those products at the end of the story. So if I can acquire projects, end up with a, being a royalty company, being a, a property generator, uh, and being a property bank, that's what I want to be. At the same time, creating value for the shareholders, not diluting them, uh, and making money. Hmm. Excellent. Uh, Wes, now on to you. Let's... Uh... I wanted to talk. So if we go, if we go to your website, I mean, you have, you know, tables of assays up and, and some very impressive, some very impressive returns, very impressive assays. Your overarching theory is that you are exploring on the top of a yet to be discovered intrusion related gold deposit is, is the language that you use in your website. Um, that obviously that can be quite prolific in terms of the actual gold deposit, but maybe the question I have for us, I mean, what is your evidence that makes you, what is the evidence in support of that? Right. And what is the significance, I guess? Well, I guess, uh, I mean, we're still assembling the evidence. This is, uh, this is kind of a new, uh, this is not a typical uh, uh, model that uh, has been chased throughout the Archean greenstone belts in Canada throughout history. I mean, Mostly it's shear zones and, and massive quartz veins and spectacular grades and, and all of that all of that stuff is fun. But at the end of the day, what's more valuable? You know, a, a meter of 100 grams a ton or 100 meters of a gram? I mean, it's, it's you know, from my experience in the industry, I know that uh, these large tonnage low-grade deposits are quite desirable. The two largest producers in Canada today are, are both large tonnage low-grade gold projects. They're all in sustaining costs, which is the ultimate measure of what Jack goes to, which is making money. Uh, the all in sustaining cost between a, a large tonnage low grade deposit like Detour Lake is exactly the same as Macasa, which is Canada's highest grade gold mine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're looking at the evidence of this alkalic intrusive, which basically suggests a direct connection to the mantle. Uh, the, these fluids coming up from great depths through the mantle, carrying all kinds of, uh, in this particular instance, just gold. And that's, that's also unusual for, for, for Canadian greenstone belts. It's just gold at Tower Mountain so far. And, and, and as it gets closer to the surface where, where, where we're currently at today and, and bearing in mind Greg's uh, 
wonderful analogy about a bowl of spaghetti. Uh, you know, as it gets closer to the surface where we're at present day surface, it, it becomes diffuse and it becomes disseminated and becomes a larger, uh, a lower grade system spread out over a broader area. And the concept is that as we chase this thing down, where we see it elsewhere in the world, these intrusion related gold deposits, they all coalesce into a sheeted vein system where you have a uh, uh, great opportunity to generate absolutely world-class type grades and, and widths and continuity at depth that that's everybody's seeking in terms of long-term value. So, you know, that's that's kind of the concept we're looking, we're working on the geochemistry, trying to establish the ge ge geochemical fingerprint of, a, of an intrusion-related gold system. But, you know, the, the short answer is there's not really much else it could be. <laughs> you know, you know, I've got I've got gold over a widespread area in very very consistent grades. So if you know, if you look at Cripple Creek in the U.S., one of the largest copper gold deposits in the world, that was an intrusion related gold system. There's some some similarities there, but the problem is I don't have copper, so that sort of takes away this whole uh, copper gold porphyry type setting. I mean, if if I was a gambling man, I'd, I'd call it a stockwork hosted gold system because we do see quartz veins, although our quartz veins are millimeter scale, not meter scale. And, and the density of those quartz veins, the, the link between the gold mineralization and the, the frequency and density of quartz veins is something that we're looking at closely. So longer term, in terms of um, looking at this deposit, one of the things I think offers great potential is basically the use of artificial intelligence. I know a lot of people are going to get their back up about that, but AI and, and different scanning photography methods that can consistently deliver, um, you know, measured results of, of the amount of quartz veining in a particular on a per meter basis throughout the system and, and, and try to draw the relationship between gold grades and quartz veins. So that's one avenue we're very excited to pursue. And at the end of the day, I think it's important for all investors to remember one thing and one thing only. Invest in companies that are drilling. <laughs> because drilling's where the money's at, man. That's, you know, on average, statistically across the industry, these large tonnage low-grade deposits need about 30,000 meters of drilling to, to, to put a million ounces of mineral resource in the bank. And higher-grade systems like you know, like the the Red Lakes and the Macassas, they require even more. So, for example, Detour Lake had a million meters of drilling when they did their feasibility study resource oh. estimate. Hmm. If you ain't drilling, you're not generating value. And this kind of goes back to Jack's point, like diluting shareholders. At some point in time, you have to dilute your shareholders simply because you've you got to keep exploring in order to survive. Because... Really, there's nothing less useful in the world than a than an exploration geologist that's not exploring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said, well said. Yeah. So, George, we'll we'll start. We'll end with you for this round of questioning. And I, I kind of apologize to George that diamonds are not a specialty of mine. It's been actually a good opportunity to, to opportunity for me. Pardon me, just to try to get my head wrapped around it a bit more than I otherwise have. And so, but George, I guess I you've you have touched on this. And so, let me know if you feel like you've answered this question. I can I can ask you something else. It was a conversation we had yesterday in the lead up to this, but. Kimberlitic rocks, right? 10% of all kimberlites contain diamonds. Almost all, you know, predominantly, overwhelmingly, that's where all diamonds are found. But only a few percentage of points of that 10% uh, contain diamonds. So I guess it's kind of the same question, right? I mean, we talk about pathfinders or other geological tells. I mean, it, again, this is kind of 
tiptoeing into the next question about just advice for investors in your with your specific resource or with your specific type of mineral. But what you know, if you have a, a, a layperson reading a, a news release and they see kimberlite, they see kimberlite, you know, kimberlite rocks. Is there more? Could you maybe give us? You know, what else might an investor look for in those news releases that would be a bit of a tell that this is good or bad for them or good or bad for the company? I'll, I'll start by applying the, the first question about the small percentage of diamond bearing kimberlites and apply it to the Fort Alicorn kimberlites in Saskatchewan. So we just remember when the Fort Alicorn kimberlites were first drilled, that was in 1989, August of 1989. It was not that long after there that they were shown to contain diamonds, which was then a surprise, particularly to De Beers, because at that time they thought those rocks were occurring in the Trans-Hudson origin. And so they were uh, in a mobile zone and they weren't on a craton, which broke the rules that De Beers was following. But lo and behold, uh, Whitman and Karlstrom published a very good paper in 2007, but they could show that there is a, a cratonic island through which these kimberlites have erupted, namely the Sask Craton. And so, but the indicator minerals were also telling us that it was consistent with diamonds. There were some unusual nature in the indicator minerals, but you had kimberlites, you had abundant macrocrystic olivines. These are the olivines that made up the mantle where the peritotic diamonds were formed. And they came up with the kimberlite to the surface. And so these were all signs that were telling us these kimberlites were diamond bearing and the diamonds were real. And it was a very good opportunity. The further we have looked at that, and then very quickly when I joined STAR in 2003, we got a population of clinopyroxenes, and lo and behold, we could show that the geotherm on the saskraton was the same as on the slave, 35 to 36 millipots per meter squared. So it was very consistent with the kimberlites being diamond bearing. Then let's jump forward a little bit to the sort of tip about what to consider. When you look at a diamond project, you have to consider three things. You have to consider the, the grade, which is usually in carats per 100 tons. So that's 0.2 of a gram is a carat per 100 tons. So there's very little diamond in an awful lot of kimberlite. So grade, you have to consider dollar per carat, which is the dollar per carat price of a diamond parcel is unique to the kimberlite that erupted to surface. So in a body like the star kimberlite, we might have four or five kimberlites that compose that body and they will have different dollar per carat prices. The predominant economic unit in star is what we refer to as the EJF or early Jolifu kimberlite. It has a diamond price approaching $200 per carat, which is essentially double the world average which is fantastic. And that's driven by the coarse size frequency distribution and these type 2A diamonds. Also, you have to worry about grade, price, and tons. Obviously, how much is there to make the system? And because we have 479 million tons of ore feed from Star and Orion South for our PEA number, 
we have a 34-year mine life. It's like one of these low-grade, large gold or copper deposits. It has a very long life. There are more mines in the future, and we are very optimistic about the future development of this project. I hope that gives you a good bit of information to hang your hat on. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's excellent. It's, I'll have to come back. I mean, there's just yeah, great amounts of knowledge here. I'll have to come back and take some notes here from the recording. We are going to officially go over time here a little bit, gentlemen. I hope that's okay. But I just think that this last round of questions just tips for investors is just kind of what I phrased it as uh, is maybe, you know, what I would hope is to be one of the more important ones for, for people listening in. So I'll try to be brief, not too long winded here. Um, I might sneak in. There's some questions popping up for all of you in the Q and a here. I might try to sneak in a quick one here, but I'll, I guess I'll just ask that we try to be efficient here too, but I'll start with Jack, then Wes, then George and Greg. Uh, Jack. So first of all, uh, question from, I'm going to ask you, so advice to shareholders or advice to investors in this, in your sector or in the junior research sector in general. But, um, oh, now they're all popping up here. Maybe the question is, how much work is Globex doing on the the TTM deposit right now, Jack? That's the tel telecomagnesite project. Yes. Uh, yeah, we've spent uh, close to $5 million on it. Uh, we've come up with the economics of it. We've done the metallurgical test work. Uh, we know what the capital costs are. They have to be adjusted, I guess, for the last year. But uh, we have a very good idea what's involved. Uh, and we're at the stage now where we're looking for uh, a major to come in. Uh, we have one major that uh, has informed us that they're coming in this summer to do a sampling uh, of the deposit, uh, as as well as actually another project, which we have as a brew site. Uh, so um, we're hopeful uh, that uh, we're at the point now that we can interest someone in carrying this forward. Uh, the other opportunity we have is possibly is just to spin it out and, as a separate standalone company. Uh, but the difficulty in that is going to be is trying to get people to understand something that is not gold or silver or copper or zinc. Uh, you talk about uh, you know a, a, a something like talc, which in the lowest grade material is used as a filler in rubber tires or at the higher stand, it's extremely valuable and used in the plastics. There's so much to explain. Uh, and then also about the magnesium oxide application. So uh, cutting it short, because you want you know, not much time, but yeah, we spent a good amount of money on the project and we're at the point now we're looking for the big dollars of capital uh, to carry it forward. Mm -hmm. And then just try to transition to, I mean, this can be very specific if you want or just generalist, but just advice you would give to people trying to make a go in this sector. Uh, uh, investment. As investment, yeah, investment advice, tips, tips from a geologist, right? Yeah. Oh God, uh, look at track record. Uh, that's really, really important. And one thing that most people don't do: go look at the financials uh, and uh, MD&A and and see. Uh, you know, you can go look at the thing. And you find out that a company has debentures that are worth. You know that that call for another $10 million and the company's only got a million in cash and they've got this project that requires 50 million. Well, you can do the math, but if you don't look at the financials, large percentage of the time you're gonna get screwed. Uh, and, and just one other thing, you have to understand financials. A lot of people don't understand financials. In the case of Globex, for example, 
uh, all of our 232 projects show us on our books as zero value because it was costing so much to deal with the auditors every year because they wanted to value each property to put into the annual statement. So you have to be aware of what kind of animal you're looking at and how their financials are structured. That's it. Awesome. No, thank you for that, Jack. Wes, over to you. What are you, any any parting pieces of wisdom for would-be investors? I, I think I think a lot of the comments today have, have given investors the, the the basis or the hints. I mean, if you're looking for gold, look where there's gold. If you're looking for diamonds, look where there's diamonds. I mean, that's that's self-explanatory. Invest in the team. Like if, if I, I I mean, if you if you haven't got gray beards like us sitting around at the table uh it's going to be it's going to be a challenge um so i mean the location the team the demonstrated mineralization i mean that's that's one of the best pieces of advice i can uh, anybody's ever given and, and thanks for that jack but i mean look at the history of the project has there been gold found or copper found or nickel or talc or whatever it happens to be or diamonds um you know those those are are valuable clues. If you've got a company saying we found this great deposit of X in this area of the world where it's never been found before, then you end up in a situation like we saw in the 1980s, which wasn't very happy for all of us. And I, I'm talking about the Brex situation, right? It just didn't make sense at those times. So, you know, like invest in the team, invest in the in the company. Look at the financial statements. Look at you can do online courses to teach you how to read a financial statement. But the thing I always look at. How much money is management taken out of it? Like, I mean, you hear a lot of uh, you hear a lot of uh, investment advisors saying, "Well, management has to have skin in the game in terms of shares." But you know, if your if your pay and your bonuses and your stock options and all of those other things are contingent on your company doing well, that's an investment by your management team and a belief in the project. So, you know, it's it's not always about how many shares these guys are buying if they're if they're pulling off three hundred and five hundred thousand dollar a year salaries, so that's make sure the dollars that are being raised are going into the ground to do what they're supposed to do, which is which is generate shareholder value. That's that's where dollars have to go in the ground, period. So, excellent. I find it really interesting. The two answers so far from geos, and they're both about uh, the the team and the finances versus the actual geology. I think that's quite interesting. Uh, <laughs> George, we'll transition here to you. I have a question from Mark here. Just, I'm not sure if this is something that you're going to be able to answer clearly, but I thought I would just give him a chance to, to hear his question be asked. Uh, understanding is that you have a deal with Rio Tinto that's kind of under wraps right now. I'm just wondering if you can provide an update in, of any sort on that. All I can say is there is corporate activity in which I'm not intimately involved. It is underway and when the deal is done, obviously there'll be an announcement, but I, I, I don't know if and when that will happen. Yeah, no, yeah, perfect. Thank you, George. So, and then uh, parting thoughts from you, then general advice that you would give to people in the sector. Oh, uh, I just uh, emphasize the. I've already stated how important the diamond price is, as opposed to the grade and the tons. Uh, certainly, with the star kimberlite, we have a very well constrained price. We have some ten thousand carats of plus one millimeter diamonds out of the ground. We've done a lot of sampling of all of the units that make up star. We have an adjacent kimberlite in Orion South that has a smaller sample because it was constrained by the restrictions of the world financial crisis in 2008. 
And so we are presently doing some very detailed work on the diamond populations of both of those bodies to try and remove the risk from the price on, on Orion South. And in, in so doing, we will get ourselves into a very much better position to update our feasibility study, hopefully when we get the project back for ourselves, and then drive it forward, remembering that we have in our PEA, we have 66 million carats that can be recovered over a 34-year mine life with a substantial uh, dollar per carat diamond price approaching $200 a carat. It's a very strong economics. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, George. And Greg, we're getting some kind words from you from some Ghanaians in the group. So I guess kudos to you for that. Uh, I have one question here from, and I'll apologize for the mispronunciation, Ntia Moa. Um, he's asking, my question, how has the field of exploration geology evolved over the years and what technological advancements or methodologies have had the most significant impact on your work? I might just ask you to ask that, Greg, or answer that, and then we'll move on to your advice. Sure. Um, wow. Uh, it's all changed, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, except the rocks, because they're 2 billion years old. But uh, uh, I, I mean, off the very top of my head, the first thing I thought about was communication. You know, we used to go in the field and, and be away for weeks or, or months on end and... and you know, you went in there with a plan and, and it, it, you know, and it didn't really give you the ability to divert from the plan all that much because, uh, you know, you were taking all those samples and then didn't even send them away for months and then didn't get the results for months after that. And, and you know, you had the one field season and then, you know, you spent the off season waiting. So, but right now, you know, even more, especially where we are in Ghana, we're, we're we're able to take samples and, and even when, when we're drilling and, and uh, send them off to a number of commercial labs that are there, get results back in, in you know, anywhere from one to four weeks for us. We, thankfully, we never had the, you know, six month turnarounds that were killing people there for a while. So mm -hmm. we continue to have uh, turnarounds in, in weeks. And, and uh, you know, we've drilled over 90,000 meters in, in the last couple of years. And, and to be able to do that, and, and that's part of the communication is, is, you know, getting all of those samples there, the paved roads, getting them there to the lab in four hours, getting the turnaround in weeks of them emailing you all of the results, the guys on site being able to put that into the software packages that we have, see where that sits in relation to everything and in terms of 3D models and all of that. So, so just all of that has just completely changed. You know, even when we all started that, you know, you were, you were doing hand-drawn sections and, and uh, uh, you know, again, waiting months or, or again, a whole field season before you could follow up on a, on a, on a, on a, on a discovery that you were making. And, and now you can do it weeks later. So, uh, so communication, technology turnaround. Uh, I think it was Wes maybe who uh, mentioned the dirty word AI, but uh, uh, you know, use it for what it's worth. Don't rely on it completely, but uh, if it's there, use it. Use all of the tools that are available. To you. It's such a risky business, mineral exploration, that that you're 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 doing a disservice to yourself and and to your shareholders and to the the team you're working with if you don't use all of the technology that's available to you. Excellent. No, well said. And then so advice almost sounds like you're giving advice there anyway, but advice there for, for investors? Yeah, well, be fully aware that this is a risky business, even with us gray beards here and our experience and, you know, trying to, 
to, to again, use all of the tools and, and, and look after other people's money, which is essentially what we're doing uh, most of the time. And, and our own, uh, the company I work for, management owns 21% of it and has put that money in at, at prices, you know, higher or at the same as all of the other investors. So uh, that is important. And uh, yeah, just be aware that it's a risky business. Look at how your company is de-risking that, uh, you know, from the finding the gold to, to once you find it, making sure that metallurgically it makes sense, uh, that they're doing things right on the ground in terms of the community and the environment, because if they're not, that's going to bite you in the butt. And, and uh, within reason, be working in jurisdictions where, you know, obviously there's, there's challenging jurisdictions that can work, but the, the, that risk has to be balanced out by what you're looking for. I guess what I'm saying is you can't go look for a small deposit in a tough jurisdiction because it's just you're not going to end up owning it or you're not going to be end up doing anything with it. So um, the the risks all have to balance each other, whether they're technical or jurisdictional or, or environmental or social. They all have to be taken in, in into account. Hmm. Well said. Well, that's it, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, this has been a very uh, informative 75 minutes here. And I, I will say just as a personal editorial again, that all four of these companies I find personally pretty compelling. Uh, and, and yeah, I'm going to be spending more time on my own here getting to know these, these companies. But thank you to George Reed and Star Diamond Corp. Thank you to Greg Smith from Newcore Gold, Wes Hansen from Thundergold, and Jack Stock from Globex. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you to Six. And if you like my work, please come check it out. Junior Resource Investing, YouTube, and Substack. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.